y'all come on in, take your shoes off, sit on down. Y'all listening to In the Corner, Back by the Woodpile. I'm Spun Counter Guy. Thanks for stopping by. This is another installment of the Dow of Dow edition of In the Corner Back by the Woodpile. And part four of the Dow of, weren't we supposed to have turned back there? Which chronicles my time in China trying to learn more about the said wisdom tradition. My friend Mac Daddy McWilliams is in the recording studio Agamion, and our sister Vic is reading all the source material. If you're just walking in here for the first time, you might want to jump back to episodes 117, 127, and 131 to hear all the adventures up to this point, or if you don't want to do that, fine, just listen on. Whenever you give alms, do not sound a trumpet before you, as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and the streets, so that they may be praised by others. Truly, I tell you, they have received their reward. But when you give alms, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, so that your alms may be done in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. Matthew 6, 2-4 A characteristic of Taoist ethics is that when a person does a good deed and brags about it, he loses the merit because it is contrary to Tao that gives life and nurtures all beings without possession or pride in the spirit of non-action. The Taoist practice of hidden merit thus urges people to be merciful to the poor, and to suffering sentient beings. Sun Hei Kim. I should say that my interest in the spirituality of China wasn't limited to Dao Jia. My curiosity led me to have some interaction with most of the religions that are allowed in the country. Christianity seems to be the stickiest of all the legal faiths in the communist ruled kingdom. As a foreigner, I wasn't allowed to attend officially any of the state-sanctioned churches. And if I tried, I could cause trouble for the members. In some of the other major cities, there were churches that were set aside just for foreigners, but as far as I knew, there was none of those in the province that I was living. I should explain how Christianity's existence is allowed in the officially atheistic country. After Mao's death, official state churches, or the three self-churches, were allowed. And by allowed, it means that they are registered with the government. They cannot receive any funding or instructions from foreigners, and the Communist Party has to approve the clergy positions. The trouble is, church leadership nowadays is actually appointed by the government, and as that the Communist Party is so corrupt, friends of officials will often be appointed as the pastor or staff members of the church, and it is not uncommon for many of them to both have no theological training or in fact have any beliefs. In other words, many official Christian clergy are atheists who simply want a nice paid government post. These guys are also toadies for the party in that they spy on the members and twist the teachings to be in line with official Chinese communist doctrine, whatever it happens to be that particular year. This, of course, illustrates perfectly the trouble any truth seekers encounter if they have to be beholden to a financial backer, whether they be the Hebrew priest partially dependent on Israel's king, the Anglican clergy sponsored by the British crown, or a country preacher having to do theological contortions so as not to alienate tithing church members. Anyway, as that Christianity is pretty much incompatible with atheism and tyranny both, the official state churches in China are a big ineffective joke. Yeah. Do the parishioners know that they're 
toadies? Yeah. But they attend anyway. They don't have a choice. Something is better than nothing, I, I would guess, in people's minds. Hmm. I wonder how many people that go into that actually get converted. The toady. Yeah, I don't know. That would be interesting to find out. I, I can relate it to this. I, I think there was an Eastern European guy who, during the Iron Curtain years, his job was to process news from the West and uh, censor things before they came into the the communist country. Mm. There's a video of him talking about how he ended up, because of all the stuff he had to censor, he ended up converting to ideas of democracy and you know free market and all that hmm. because he had to censor it. He was inundated with it. It's interesting. Yeah. Peter and I were visiting a small ancient city one weekend just for sightseeing purposes, and we saw a great big Catholic church in the middle of it. We got brave, and we went to visit we getting a, a stunned eyeful at seeing some very young, beautiful girls introduced to us as the nuns of the establishment. How we knew they were very attractive is that they weren't wearing habits, but just the standard fashion for that year. Our guess was that they weren't really believers or Catholic or whatever, but just relatives of someone high up or possibly didn't mind knowing, in the biblical sense, some government official somewhere to land the paid position. The head priest was also dressed like any other schmo, and couldn't really answer any of our theological questions. When I asked, did the party ever give them any trouble, he replied no, except that they did have to chop down part of their steeple, as that it had made it the highest structure in the city, and that honor was reserved for government buildings. So understandably, what has happened is the advent of the underground church, which are just Christians that secretly meet in individuals' homes or other low-profile places. These occurrences are highly illegal and will land you in prison or as a volunteer living organ donor. But as a positive byproduct pointed out by Peter, who himself would later become a Christian, this persecution weeds out the wheat from the chaff. In spite of all I've just told you, the province I worked in was so notoriously populated by the most lazy or corrupt government officials in the whole country, the religion policy was not strictly enforced. It's a lot of paperwork one has to fill out if one stumbles across an illegal church group meeting. So by and large, true believers went unmolested. With that in mind, Megan and I were one day riding our bicycles out in the outlying hills around the city we lived in and stopped at a tiny church's courtyard to rest. We didn't think it was really an official church, but just a building tucked out of the way with a rough-looking cross on it. It was so plain and seemingly empty from what we could see through the dirty windows, we weren't sure it was even still functioning. But eventually, an old woman appeared who was a volunteer caretaker and talked with us for a little while. At some point, Megan and the woman began chatting to each other, and given the serious look on my dear sister's face, I thought it best to leave them alone. Eventually, Megan was ready to go, and on the way home, I asked why she was so quiet, she said she had never met a person with so much peace in her being. The two of us had another similar experience in a Christian bookstore someone told us about that was unadvertised and was in the apartment of a high-rise building. There was a soft-spoken, physically handicapped man who ran the establishment, whom I learned later was more surviving on donations from the West than actual book sales. Megan asked him a couple questions, and next thing I know, she's weeping while listening to him speak. Again, on the bicycle ride home, my maymate reported that she had never met a person with such pure words. I couldn't help be a bit envious of the bookseller. I having only been able to make Megan cry that one time, I accidentally put her hand in a boiling hot pot stew, me mistaking her hand for a pile of pink raw pork. 
I would in time meet all kinds of Chinese Christians. They having that knack of finding you in a crowd, and they became kindred friends to me in my short time in the country. Jews. Although a super minority at this point, Jewish folk have been in China as long as Christians and Muslims. They all mostly arriving via the trade route known as the Silk Road in the 600s. There were none in the city I was in, but Sophia's family one weekend wanted to take me to the city of Kaifeng to go to some amusement park. I lit up at the prospect because I had remembered reading somewhere that there was the remains of a Jewish synagogue in the city. Sophia's family promised that they would let me hunt the place down, but only after we had fun at the park. So we rode some rides, saw some Mongolians do their jumping from horse to horse thing, witnessed a cockfight, and after all that excitement, Sophia's parents let me and Sophia loose. We wandered around the city asking everyone, do you know where the Yotai, the Mandarin word for Jew, is? Nobody knew, which kind of astounded me. Kaifeng, besides at one time being the capital of China, was well known for being Jew central. I finally had the bright idea of going to a Buddhist temple to ask, supposing Siddhartha and Moses were brothers of sorts. The monks there didn't have a clue either. But then there was an extremely thick glasses-wearing Buddhist pilgrim there who had been following us around for a while on the temple grounds, eavesdropping on Sophia and I's frustrated English conversation. The painfully shy, nerdy-looking guy finally got up the nerve and said in very strained English, I can give you show the yotai. Sophia was suspicious of the guy and didn't want to trust him, but I thought he looked harmless enough. And so we all piled into an electric rickshaw, and off we went whizzing through the alleys of the city. Sure enough, we eventually stopped in front of the back of a tiny building with a banner hanging on it that had English, Chinese, and Hebrew written on it. The gate was locked and we banged on it, but no one ever answered. Finally, a random citizen wandered by and told us that the woman who lived there was at work. It seems the woman who was at her job was the caretaker of all that was left of the synagogue, which was just a well. Sadly, we needed to start the long journey back to our home city, so we never got to see one of the few Chinese Jews left in the city or her well. But we had a great time with Coke Bottle Glasses guy, who seemed to have gained all kinds of chatty Cathy confidence by the time he got us back to Sophia's family. As a side note, sadly, I found out later, a couple years after our visit to Kaifeng, the Chinese government closed down the Israeli-sponsored Jewish school that was in the city and had the well filled in and is now closed off to visitors. Buddhism is pretty difficult not to interact with in China. There are temples and images of the solemn sage everywhere. But I remember while visiting one of the more popular temples in the city I was living at, raising an eyebrow at the countless walls lined with photos of one handsome young monk cheesing with everyone from pop singers to high-up Communist Party officials. And where were the teachings of Buddha displayed in the temple? Possibly plastered over by the photos because I couldn't find any. This occurrence perfectly illustrates the state of Buddhism in modern China. As you might have guessed at this point, like with official Christianity, Buddhism is state-controlled, but unlike Christianity, there's lots of money to be made from it. How does that work, one might ask? Especially considering Buddha himself promoted detachment from all things, be they mental or material. And one might also ask how that would work considering communism is all about, well, being a communist. The temples in China are really just a tourism industry and a giant revenue source for the ever-adapting-to-suit-our-needs Communist Party. The temple locations, at least, are not without some legitimate bragging rights, and the government plays on both 
the Chinese people's pride in their history, and their ability to never turn down a chance for good luck or better karma. For example, the Baimasa White Horse Temple in Luoyang is reportedly where Buddhism was first brought to China, so one might want to buy a ticket to go see one of the oldest Buddhist sites in the country and pay to light some incense that might bring your bank account some fattening. Shaolin Temple, up on its misty, twisty road mountain, is where martial arts was born, so you gotta go watch all the kung fu demonstrations and to give a donation to offset the shame of your abusing all the workers in your factory. And there are countless Buddhist shrines in every city and town that have some kind of historical significance and promise of magic. Sure, almost none of what you end up seeing are original structures, some being lost to time and decay, but most to the rapacious fervor that was the Cultural Revolution, instigated by the same party that now makes a ton of money from it, by the way. And another strange or disappointing thing that you'll notice at these temples are that the abbots and monks look a whole lot more chipper than you'd expect most anyone who aren't getting to enjoy hamburgers, beer, and vaginas on a regular basis, these all being forbidden to most observant Buddhist clergy. Well, the thing is, they probably are up to their necks in hamburgers, beer, and vaginas, and hence the lack of that solemn starving look. How can this be? I mean, unlike those saucy nuns at the faux Catholic church, the clergy do at least wear the robes and shave their heads even. But these guys, at the end of their paid shifts, get into their cars, drive home to their wives or girlfriends and children to enjoy a nice meaty dinner and a little uh-huh, uh-huh on their expensive beds. The robes are really just a uniform like you'd wear to any other job, like the Walmart smock, say. And all the religious humility and observances aren't really required. I mean, these temples are such money-making ventures via tickets and the donation boxes. There's a few famous videos circulating around the Chinese internet of the monks counting all the money they've made. And it's like tubs and boxes of cash. Kind of like that Depeche Mode 101 video. Mm -hmm. You tools have made my house into a den of thieves, Buddha might co-op from Jesus. There's also videos in circulation of monks eating grand meaty dinners and playing video games in internet cafes while hot chicks sit in their laps, holding bottles of beer to their lips. Not kidding. Email me and I'll send you a few. And so it is with the Christian structures. The true Buddhists aren't to be found at the temples. I was fortunate enough to have one student in my university classes, his English name being Smile, whom was the real deal, and we had so many wonderful conversations over meals, walks, bicycle rides, and such. For him to find true Buddhist teachings, Smile had to travel outside the mainland to listen at the feet of a master who is so really a Buddhist, he's been banned from entering the crony communist country. And so just like the underground church, there are, I am told, organizations of Buddhist practitioners that are unofficially operating, but of course are also keeping it on the down low. My interaction with Chinese Muslims was pretty limited. There was a large population in my home city, and they had a good reputation, if for anything, that their restaurants were almost guaranteed to be more sanitary, given their observance of Muslim dietary laws. But I could never really develop a taste for their food, so I rarely have much happenstance opportunity to chat with them. I should say that, even though in our region, the Muslims were a pretty peaceful people, in other parts of China, they were feared greatly. While I was in the country, there was some Muslim riots occurring, and the video footage of what they did to non-Muslims was horrific, to say the least. I recall one instance of a middle-aged, burqa-wearing woman pulling an ethnic hand, that's the Chinese majority, mm -hmm. from his car, 
and smashing his head with a brick until it was collapsed flat. The woman raised her arms in victory at her carnage while the body still twitched. Well, a friend of mine, we'll call Titi, whose father was a Muslim, though didn't practice Islam, still wanted to hold an interfaith salon. I think I was supposed to bring Western Christianity, Mr. Wu, the Dao Jiao, and a local imam was bringing Islam. Unfortunately, the event never unfolded into anything more than a monofaith salon, as that the imam, he just up and said that we were all on foolish pursuits with our non-Muslim faiths. I tried to make the best out of a bad situation and asked the cleric to tell us about the history of Muslims in China. His reply was that there was no history outside the Quran, so it wasn't his concern. <laughs> Titi was embarrassed at the imam's behavior and afterwards walked Mr. Wu and I out of the building while apologizing. I think later that day the girl texted me asking whether I would be open to meeting a different imam. I said sure, and in a week or so I found myself in a mosque in the Muslim-dominated section of the city. This imam was very kind and was well-versed on Christianity, Taoism, and Buddhism, and we had a wonderful time exchanging ideas. At the end of our meeting, he apologized for the behavior of the other imam and kind of implied that that guy had a problem. I laughed and replied, Wotongi, which was my way of saying, yeah, he does. <laughs> we embraced, and this imam asked me to tell the West about the good Muslims, so here I am telling you. The best charioteers head into battle as fast as they can. The best fighters do not show their hatred. The greatest conqueror wins without fighting every battle. The best utilizer of others acts as though he is below them. This is called the power that comes of not showing his power and having the capacity to use capable men. This is a secret of being one with heaven and the old ways. Tao Te Ching 68 The sage lets the myriad of beings live without dominating them. He gives life without attempting to possess, benefits all without exacting gratitude. Tao Te Ching, Chapter 2 The living body is soft and pliable, while the corpse is hard and stiff. Living things are soft and tender, flexible and malleable, so is the human mind. When you are angry or hate someone, what do you feel? You feel rigid and stiff. Just look at your face in the mirror, rigid and tense. At that moment, you take a step closer to your death and are just that much more like a corpse. Sunhaikim. I remember in America working for a time at a shop geared for kids and many other interests and needs, we'll say. The store had only been open a few months before I got there, and they had a new manager we'll call Dee Dee, whom, if I'm remembering this correctly, she had just got done raising her boys and had taken the job to maybe avoid the empty nest syndrome. Micromanaging was DD style, and for a moment, I went along with whatever she told me to do. But eventually, because of my irritation at the sometimes inefficient ways she wanted us to perform tasks, or perhaps because she sometimes interrupted my helping of a customer to take over the sale herself, leaving me to look incompetent, or because of my indignation, of being paid minimum wage, I began to respond to her commands by politely offering what I thought were better alternatives and holding my ground when I thought I was unquestionably right. Dee Dee always countered my suggestions with a syrupy, nicey-nicey, well, yes, that's great, but how about let's do it the way I was just talking about? 
I would oblige her at first, but when she wasn't looking, I would go back to doing it the way I wanted. Things came to a head when she had planned a party called something like the Boys Only Club, where I was supposed to lead some kind of kindergarten to second grade age males in games, songs, and eating cupcakes. Dee Dee had probably spent a good amount of time planning the event, but I remember reading up on some of the activities before the party started and thought, if I were a seven-year-old boy, I would think this was dumb. Still, when the party got going, I went along with Dee Dee's program. Well, the boys quickly became bored, agitated, and some began to look for an escape during the set activities. And to save the party from descending down into a little kid riot, I augmented the itinerary until it became something of a challenge and hopefully fun to the boys. And right as everyone was beginning to enjoy themselves, the manager popped out from a couple of bookshelves she had been eavesdropping and proclaimed, No, no, you're doing it wrong. One of the little boys looked up at me and protested with, She's a girl. She's not supposed to be here. I responded with, I know. (laughs) Right then and there, I made a moral enemy. In time, Dee Dee would present to the owners of the shop an exaggerated and fabricated picture of me, the worst accusation being made that I made the parents of the children suspicious and creeped out. They had told her so, she said. I was furious and sick to my stomach for days after the owners brought the accusations against me. Eventually, I got over it, especially after talking to other employees who had their own gripes against Dee Dee. Witnessing children ignore or flee from the manager in her attempts to be their buddy. And hopefully, I proved the accusations ridiculous over time by just being myself, which wasn't the picture she had painted of me. Eventually, I found another job, and Dee Dee quit not long after that. About a decade before this incident, I worked as a case manager for the handicapped and presided over a handful of group homes. At the beginning of my tenure, I met with all the home moms, as we call them, and basically said, if you do your jobs, you'll rarely see me. I had required monthly visits just to make sure everything looked good and to see if they needed anything from me. But most everyone did do their jobs, and I was quite proud of my management approach. Then enter Marielle Amore, we'll call her. Unlike her name, she was a cold, bitter woman whom I began to realize was cruel and unfair to the men she took care of. These residents were in their 60s and older, and she would withhold their prized possessions or their favorite foods if they displeased her. I would have understood if they had done something dangerous to themselves or others, but it was such actions as muttering under their breaths at her, leaving a piece of clothing on the bedroom floors, or not eating the food they didn't like. I finally had to tell Marielle that she couldn't do this, especially given the state's guidelines on individuals and their human rights. The old woman barked, back at me and went over my managerial head to complain about me, telling her how to do her job. The powers that be told me to back off because of her age and of her many years of employment at the agency. My pride disappeared and was replaced by anger, witnessing men she looked after being denied the small things that made their lives worth living. My anger turned to nausea when two of the men eventually died, and at both of their funerals, Mariella Moore pretended to be the grieving mother, soaking up all the sympathy from the funeral goers. But really, I had to remind myself at my own fumbling at being a house dad a few years before becoming a case manager. Now granted, most of the individuals I looked after had histories of violence and serious mental illness, and so I had the threat of, if these guys go nuts on my watch, someone might get seriously hurt and then it's on me. I tried all kinds of ways of being the good time dad, of which unfortunately encouraged their behavior to become brazen to the point of dangerous. So after a total reversal 
of approach and a strict regimen was enforced. Peace returned, and in time they began to become more adult-like in their words and deeds, and I could be relatively loosey-goosey with them again. Later, there was a little old man whom I looked after who was so sweet, it was a joy just to be around him. But then one day, he began acting first strangely and then just defiant. I got heartbroken at the turn of events, and this eventually turned to anger at his ignoring my request that he did what I told him to do. Soon I was implementing a tyranny of a loss of privileges, favors, and my own barking. Well, come to find out, a doctor had changed his medication, which caused him to have some kind of reaction that left him a confused and pretty much intoxicated person. I felt like a horrible person for a long time after that incident. When I was in grade school, Dad brought home a puppy he found somewhere and we named it Coco. Dad made strict rules about the dog in that it was going to be an indoor pet, and so when we took it outside, it needed to be on a leash. We had a few acres of land surrounded by woods, and on our walks, Coco would sometimes jerk hard enough to cause me to lose the leash. The little dog would just run as fast as she could from one end of the property to the other, around me and in between trees, and so on. She was just so happy in that freedom, so I decided that on a regular basis I was going to let her have that joy. Well, one day, I did that, and she ran off out of my sight. I slowly moseyed to where she headed and then heard the sound of car brakes. I ran to the road in front of our house, and there was a clump of cocoa-colored fur laying on the side of the road. I reached Coco, and she was still breathing, yet unable to move. I picked her up and ran back onto our property, kneeled on the ground, and held her until she stopped breathing. Control, freedom, rigidity, bending, life, and death. We all were acting in a way we thought was best, but we didn't adapt. I myself do not enjoy the society of small children, but because I speak from within the Tao, I recognize this as a defect in myself, just as a man who have to recognize that he is tone deaf or colorblind. C.S. Lewis Back to my third and final year in China. University classes started back up for the fall, at which would be my final teaching term in China. And so I had to get my focus off old men and lost stories and back to teaching students. Besides, my friends were also helping me track down some specific Taoist books that were in English, and in some cases out of print, which gave me plenty to study in my free time. Also, a small circle of Chinese friends and I started meeting together to discuss the Tao. We called ourselves the Big Dummy Tao Club and met at a coffee shop in a mall. We got into trouble with the managers there because we laughed too loudly, they said, all to say it was a joyous time every time. As my time in China was drawing to an end, I decided to try for one more trip, Lingbao. This was the very place where Lao Tzu supposedly wrote the Tao Te Ching and left civilization via the Hongu Pass. I didn't have my hopes up even getting there, much less seeing anything life-changing. I had recently just been to a new museum in Luoyang dedicated to Lao Tzu that, at least when I went, was full of staff who knew nothing about Taoism, or English either, based on the display of placards written in Chinglish. Good thing, because when Taylor and her friends and I got to Lingbao, there was some recently built big cement Taoist symbols and statues, but they were already crumbling, and there was lots of vendors selling all kinds of plastic sheep toys that had nothing to do with anything. The government had built a temple there, too, dedicated to Taoism, Buddhism, and Communism together. Not kidding. A portrait of Chairman Mao was placed next to Lao Tzu, 
the latter whose writings the former was trying to eradicate through vandalism, terror, and murder. There was also an electric bull, presumably because Lao Tzu rode an ox through the pass, tourists could try not to get thrown off of, that played Spanish bullfighting music. <laughs> this is so stupid, I think is how Taylor surmised the whole experience. We all just shook our heads at the lack of reverence or pride. Still, we got to walk in the holler where they think Lao Tzu passed through where I tried to imagine what was going through the old man's head. He probably thought, I wish I had rode that electric bull back... <laughs> Sorry. I wish I had rode that electric bull back before that fat guy in the Daisy Dukes got on there. Ew, it was all nasty sweaty. <laughs> uh. About a month before my contract was up, the, the Loyang newspaper wanted to do an article to talk about my three years in China. The reporter was a little better than the other press folks I had met who seemed to have already written the stories and were just looking to confirm their preconceived ideas of foreigners. The woman let me ramble on about my take on the Tao and be blunt about the pitiful state of Chinese people not knowing their own history and philosophy. I guess someone else had told her that I was using English versions of the Taoist stories to teach my primary school students, and her just mentioning that in the finished article opened up a bunch of other new doors. We got all kinds of calls from Taoist organizations wanting to meet, eat, and give me things. I was given mostly books on the subject, but also a Baijiu, a Chinese moonshine company, wanted to give me a couple of bottles of their alcohol called Confucius Met with Lao Tzu. Since the books were in Chinese, I gave them to Peter, Megan, Taylor, and another dear friend named Moon, and said, read these and send me the good quotes. I only had a week to go before I left China for possibly forever, and we still hadn't heard from the old master. We called several times, but no answer. And with a heavy heart, I got on the plane feeling like I was leaving behind something important. The people are the most important element in a nation. The state is the second, and the leaders are the least important. These are the correct relations among the people, the state and the rulers. Thing is, the politician often thinks that they are the most important and above everything else, while the people are to be subservient and completely at their mercy. Zhuangzi encounter with Chen Yunkun. Going back to Dao De Ching's sitting unread on American bookshelves and control yet again, it is a little disappointing that it seems the only people here who might have actually read the text are intellectuals and upper class. Now, I'm not trying to get into some kind of Marxist class warfare trap, but the truth be told, I've only met a tiny amount of poor or working class people who have attempted to read Lao Tzu and the other's works. These Americans tend to be of the nerd, computer programming, throwing star collecting, and comic book reading variety. One could argue that, though the working classes of any country are probably too busy living the Tao, to really need to read about it, since they dearly love their homes, they aren't interested in travel. There may be a few wagons and boats, but these don't go anywhere. There may be an arsenal of weapons, but nobody ever uses them. People enjoy their food, take pleasure in being with their families, spend weekends working in their gardens, and delight in the doings of the neighborhood, the Tao Te Ching 79. But what makes this occurrence in the USA an oddity, I believe, is the tendency of our upper classes and intellectuals to not leave everyone else alone. I can't tell you how many well-meaning folks I've met who have the Tao of any amount of works in their libraries, 
whom also like to muse aloud, if people would only dot 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 do what they say. And so there begins our contradictory trouble. Now, it's not some inherently evil conclusion because, after all, if someone has done well academically or financially, it would stand to reason that they must know how to do something right. Also, we are implored by Lao Tzu, Jesus, Buddha, and wise guys to spread the way, the word, the light, the enlightenment, the good vibrations, and other groovy smart stuff. Or as Socrates might say, be midwives to the truth already inside them. So why not spread that knowledge around, right? The tricky thing is, when helping others, we should sidestep making them do something they don't want to do, or worse, enslaving them for their own good, even if we're pretty sure it'll be to their benefit. At best, being pushy with our good intentions is our kindness growing claws and big teeth to rough up those with their own minds into behaving in a way we think best. It also makes us feel pretty good about ourselves in a delusional pride kind of way when we've got a guy's neck under our boot begging for mercy. All of this goodwill of ours is difficult to keep on the road with the nitrogen fuel tank that zealotry seems to begat. When you see a fat guy with a plate of donuts in one hand, three or four lit cigarettes in the other, and a crack cocaine addicted prostitute bending over in front of him, and you knock them all down to the ground, is that not in a way saving his life? Yes, but not really. Until he's ready to let go of his vices on his own, he's just going to continue to go out and buy more pastries, sticks, and whores, and now blow smoke in our faces, chew with his mouth open, and wag his disease-riddled dangly at us. And considering our domineering behavior, we would deserve every bit of it. The biggest thing to remember is that we wouldn't and don't like it when someone thinks they know what's best for us and forces their splendid vision of our lives onto us. In fact, the fat guy may see clearly some flaws in our own lives and has always wanted to do something about it. Now we've given him the precedent to correct it with violence or a hot crack pipe. But at worst, forcing our good wills onto others could just be wrong. Deadly wrong. Hitler's Europe, Stalin's Soviet Union, European colonization, American slavery, Indian reservations, and broken public school systems are all various examples of failures by experts doing what they saw was best for society at large. Those endeavors are the easy ones to spot, but a lot of misery is to be had via micro-foisting. It can range from forcing our views or desires onto our friends and family to voting for some motion that forces others to live our specific brand of morality. I'm not talking about trying to dissuade others of murder and theft, but things like taxing or banning foods you don't think are healthy, trying to dissuade others from using fossil fuel by way of regulation limits and, again, taxation, forcing others to go through the motions of our faith regardless if they believe it themselves. All noble intentions, I know, but the truth is that all of these actions end up only making people's lives, especially the poor, more difficult. The consequences of unforeseen intentions, how people smarter than me have put it. If you've ever used a phrase akin to, why don't people vote for their own self-interest when some election doesn't go your way? Well, you're most certainly excellent commandant material for a future work camp called Bossy Town. You may roll your eyes at what seems an alarmist exaggeration, but ultimately all legal degrees are enforced by the gun. How else are you going to enforce your ban on cigarettes, donuts, and STDs on the fat horny guy? Now, I don't look down on all of this from some place of innocence. I see all kinds of folks making the mistakes all over themselves that I have already made myself and wish they would ask me for my insight into their folly. I used to try to force my wisdom on others, which is pretty hilarious considering 
I couldn't even run my own life without resembling juggling babies and machetes. Wanting to make a difference still appeals to me very much. I often looking on in envy the powerful folks in Washington, D.C. doing their thing. But as it happens, none of them have called me to be part of their collective brain power. These days, I just try to be content at being available to family, friends, and strangers in need, and just try not to lay on my compassion with the steamroller I used to. Well, I mean, just look at everyone pushing socialist ideas. Yeah, good intentions. Yeah, and Terrible just... consequences. During the Warring States period, Zhao clan leader Zhao Jiangzi learned that his army had defeated the state of Jai, but the man immediately wore a worried look on his face when asked why considering the victory, Zhao Jiangzi replied, the rise of water in a river wanes within three days. My virtue isn't good enough to warrant such success in such a short time. As the thinking goes, if you swell with pride after a victory, you will fail in the end. And to maintain victory is more difficult than to win it initially. Success and failure exist side by side and will transform to their opposites in due time. Thus, being prepared for danger in times of peace will secure your victory. Lao Tzu, Writings of Prince of Huainan. Pride is warned against in just about every culture one comes across, yet still it persists. We all know it to be true, especially how we end up despising those with a ton of it. But as often the case with most deficits, what we see is glaring in others we fail to recognize in ourselves. There is, I think, at least one reason why pride's hold is nearing a new epidemic viral mode. One would think that pride equals bad is one of those truisms that gets a head nodding from all of us, even the ones of us whom are arrogant, pompous, and egotistical as a mutant cupcake that's expanded beyond the confines of the oven cooking it. Where I got that from. <laughs> but in our age, there's grown quite a aggressive effort to destigmatize pride, to the point that it's become a trophy to be paraded around about. As someone who has never had much to be proud of, the fill-in-the-blank with any special interest group or tribe, pride parades, strike me as at best pointless, at worst divisive. From the outside, and I'm not the only one that thinks this, it seems to be a throng of people proclaiming with nanny-nanny-boo-boo tongues hanging out of their angry mouths that they're part of a club we, watching, can never be part of. Then at other times, it looks like a collective proclamation of, yes, we know we're a mess, but there's a bunch of us now, and we're organized, so if you cross us, we'll smash your judgmental faces in. Of course, you would be hard-pressed to find anyone in that mob that would admit to that. They usually say that they're trying to undo years of shame and or that they're trying to show that they're a unified political force to be reckoned with. Regarding the former, I can see that. Generations before reasoned that pride, especially in certain attributes, was so repulsive and deadly that they made sure to beat down any notion of confidence should it ever show its swelling self. And regarding the latter, I can tell you both from observing the human condition and what I know having tried to be part of many different organizations attempting to look unified, unless they're a cult controlled by a violent personality, they are not unified. In fact, usually the only thing they can successfully agree upon is when to walk along the arbitrary number of city blocks together. And then I can tell you 
that there were a bunch of individuals in the group that didn't show up to the parade because they didn't get their say in what color the floats were going to be or who was going to get to shake the pom-poms. So really, who can take pride in either dancing with a fractured mob or submitting one's will to that of a tyrannical guru? Ayn Rand, in an argument about the illogical nature of racism, also hit at racial pride with the recoil of her attack. Quote, Racism is the lowest, most crudely primitive form of collectivism. It is the notion of ascribing moral, social, and political significance to a man's genetic lineage. The notion that a man's intellectual and characterological traits are produced and transmitted by his internal body chemistry, which means, in practice, that a man is to be judged not by his own character and actions, but by the characters and actions of a collective of ancestors." Unquote. Her argument was directed at white supremacists, I think, but it really applies to any collective identity. As a white feller, I could take some pride in that some other white fellers got themselves up on the moon, but truth be told, I did nothing to assist the white-skinned strangers, save contributing tax dollars to the U.S. space program, which was taken from me involuntarily. So it seems pretty ridiculous for me to take pride, i.e. credit, in some other dude's accomplishments, whatever their skin color. It's not that I haven't tried. I wanted to be proud of my high school, but at the pep rallies, I found myself having a difficult time clapping for members of the football team that loved slamming my face against the lockers anytime they had a chance. <laughs> That's true. For a minute, I wanted to think that Indiana was a special place in the Union. Well, maybe some unique things have been accomplished in my home state. But so have serial killers, lynchings, and molestations, so I guess we Hoosiers are not so special. I remember in China, most citizens were incredibly proud of their home cities and often asked us foreigners whether we could see how beautiful their towns were. It was almost as bad as someone asking whether we thought their kids were cute or not. What's one supposed to say, especially if the kid in question is actually a little deformed looking? Well, commenting on the positive aesthetics of any Chinese city was especially difficult given how bland, blocky communist architecture had left most cityscapes in the Middle Kingdom looking nearly identical to one another. Well, in our city, I remember one day noticing that a lot of my usually beaming students were down in the dumps, and come to find out, they were devastated because some guy in the town was caught with four women he had enslaved in his apartment for, I think, over a decade. This made the national news and thus national shame. The one student asked, how did I feel when some American did something that shamed the country? I just shrugged, explaining, Pride is a trap. If you must have pride, have it in your own actions. But even then, you're setting yourself up for disappointment and embarrassment. I would just do the best that you can at anything you do, and don't attach any emotions to it. In fact, avoid praise from others if you can. It's the heat that turns fresh milk into spoiled slush. Milk didn't really have a foothold in the province where I was living, so my analogy wasn't the best, but I think he got my general meaning. Do <laughs> you have pride, sir? No. That served you well, hasn't it? It has. <laughs> Thanks for sticking with us this far, and the next episode of the Dow of Dow should finally put the rest this particular tale. Until next time, be well. In the Corner, Black Rod of the Woodpile is produced by a closet, a pocket, and a suitcase. You can follow us on Twitter and Instagram by searching for Spun Counter Guy. You can send us an email via SpunCounterGuy at Hotmail.com. The podcast is also hosted on iTunes and Podbean.com. Peace and chicken grease!